Welcome to Browncroft. I'm Sherwin. I'm a regular volunteer. I would say longtime Browncrofter. I volunteer in family ministry, some of our outreach groups, and I'm honored to bring this third message to you in the series titled Love Your Neighbor. I want to start out by showing you this picture. It's a picture of the Apollo 8 crew. It was taken right before launch, December 21st, 1968. And their mission was to leave Earth's orbit for the first time, any crew, go to the moon, circle the moon 10 times, learn about the moon for a possible landing for a future crew. Take some pictures. And here's what's interesting. They took off. They got to the moon. They went around, and they're taking pictures while on orbit. And while they're there, one of the astronauts, Bill Anders, turns his camera away from the moon back to Earth and takes this remarkable shot. Here it is. And it's, it's been titled, Earth Rise. And we learned so much about the Earth, not the moon, from this mission. Bill Anders actually remarked, we went all the way to the moon to learn about the Earth. That was the most important discovery of this mission. And today, we're going to kick off our message and we're going to start by jumping into the middle of a passage in Mark. And there's a lot of conversations about commandments and laws and what we should and should not do. And Jesus' main takeaway, his main perspective from this passage is very similar to this story. It is that the law is like a camera. The law is like a camera. We make the greatest discoveries from the law when that camera is pointed towards us, ourselves, not others. We make the greatest discoveries when that camera, the law, is pointed towards us, not other people. And so in the beginning of the passage, there's lots of arguments. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? When somebody dies, whose husband does she belong to? You're going to see a lot of those. And Jesus centers us on what is the main point that we want to learn. And so in Mark chapter 12, if you turn with me, verses 28 to 34, you're going to find a couple of characters. First of all, in this crowd of people that's gathered around Jesus, you're going to find Pharisees and Sadducees and another group called Herodians. And these people are from a political sect. They have stake in the game on the way things are done, on the hierarchy, on the structure of Jewish life. They're part of the religious establishment. And then there's another person in this story called a scribe or a lawyer. And this is the person asking Jesus the question. This person was not part of a political group. <clears throat> they were a scribe, a lawyer, and they knew the law. This was their thing. So it's really interesting what they ask. So we pick up the story, Mark 12, 28, verse 34. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. 
Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, Jesus answered, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there's no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw this, that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So there's an interesting exchange here. This expert in the law, this scribe, this lawyer is asking Jesus about the law. And we're not exactly sure how pure his intentions are. Is he trying to pull a gotcha moment on Jesus? Is he genuinely curious? But in any case, he says to Jesus, what is the most important law? What is the most important commandment? And here's where it gets interesting. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy, the Jewish scriptures, and says, the most important commandment is to love God. And then Jesus adds a second. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Why does he do that? He's asked what's the most important command, and he gives two, not one. Why is this? The reason is this. For Jesus, we cannot love God and not love our neighbor. We cannot love God and claim to love our neighbor. Gary Enrig, in his book, The Parables of Jesus, says this, Love is not a sentimental feeling. Rather, it's a sacrificial action. It means interrupting my schedule, expending my money, risking my reputation, ruining my property, even for a stranger, so that I can do what is best for him. Love is compassion that feels, care that involves, and the commitment that endures. Love originates in the giver of love, not the object of love. Love initiates, taking the first step in reaching out to those in need. Love pays the ultimate price, going to the extraordinary lengths to help the hurting. This is the character of a neighbor, sacrificial action for the sake of others. Last week, there was a lunch right after church for our deaf community. And my wife sent me out on an errand to go and get a large pizza from Cam's right down the street. Most of you probably know it when you're driving up. Blossom and Browncroft right on the corner. And so I went into Cam's and I got there and two, two girls were manning the counter, had my order pre-ordered, getting ready, lots of energy. And so I said to them, hey, what's going on? And they said to me, well, we're getting ready for the church crowd. Sunday, 1130, absolutely, we're getting ready for 
the church crowd. And so I quickly said, I'm from Browncroft Community Church, right up the road. Blue roof, big blue roof. And I said, oh, you know, we're, we're not from out of town. We don't, we don't know where the churches are. But let me tell you, they're quite aware of the church crowd. And that made me stop and think. If I take that camera and turn it on us as a church, and I ask this, what would your neighbor say about you if we asked them about you? If I asked Browncroft's neighbors, what would they say about us? If I asked you, if I went on your street, went to your neighbor and say, what do you think about this family? What would they say? If I went to your coworker and say, what do you think about so-and-so? What would they say? There's an amazing quote by William Temple, an Anglican archbishop, and he says this. He reminds us, the church is the only organization, the church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those that are not its members. The only society that exists for those that are not its members. Think about that. If you have Amazon Prime, probably like my family, what do you expect? Free delivery. Do you have elite membership with your airline partner? What are you looking for? A free upgrade, right? If you've got Hertz Gold, what do you want to do when you rent a car? You want to skip the line. But this is not the case in God's kingdom. You'll remember in our first week, James and John comes to Jesus and, and they say, how can we sit on your right side in the next life? Last week we talked about Peter. And Jesus goes to wash Peter's feet, the disciple. And what does Peter say? This is beneath us. Jesus, this is not what we do. But not so. From Jesus' perspective, if you want to be first in his kingdom, you need to be last in this kingdom. Let me say that again. From Jesus' perspective, if you want to be first in his kingdom, you need to be last in this one. I believe most of us, most Christians believe that we should love our neighbor. That's something that we know, that we have heard. The struggle is not why we love our neighbor. The struggle is how to love our neighbor. And so I want to go back to the Old Testament and look at a short passage that helps us dig one step deeper on how to love our neighbor. And this passage, if you go back, is typically referred to as either Naaman the leper or Elisha healing Naaman the leper. And what I want to tease out is another character in this story that I believe helps us understand how we love our neighbor. And the context is this. This is about 850 B.C. And the kingdom of Israel in the north is right beside the kingdom of Aram. So Aram is right above modern-day Syria and Israel below. And in these times, there were frequent raids between kingdoms. A commander, a general might go into somebody else's kingdom, do a raid, and capture the spoils of war. People 
treasure, property, animals, and go back to their home country. And in this story, the commander in Aram, his name is Naaman. And he's made a raid in Israel, and he takes back with him as a captor an Israelite girl. And so in 2 Kings chapter 5, 1 to 3, here's what we read. Now Naaman was a commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but, and here's a big but, he had leprosy. He had leprosy. Now the bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. And the first application, the first lesson we learn from this girl, this Israelite girl, is the need to notice. If you want to love your neighbor, we have a need to notice. Let me explain. In ancient times, leprosy, many of you know, many of you have heard this, was a death sentence on your career and your connection with your family and community because it was contagious. But it didn't start out that way. It started out by being very small red spots all over your skin. And in time, those red spots would grow and they would get bigger and more obvious and they become white. Then they become shiny. And then they become even worse and the atrophy begins. This young girl who is captive, who is a servant to Naaman's mistress, noticed the leprosy early enough because Laman is still involved in his community. She notices him and she decides to say something. A need to notice. And this is why the need to notice is so important. For us to care about our neighbor, for us to care, we first have to notice. For us to care we first have to notice. There was a study done by the Pew Research Center, and it found that 50% of Americans have no weekly interaction with their neighbors. Think about that. 50% of us have zero interaction with our neighbors on a weekly basis. We have as a church as a society, as a country, a need to notice people. Do we notice the couple on our street that maybe is an empty nester whose kids and grandkids are out of town who would likely appreciate us stopping in and checking in on them and saying hi, who might even appreciate your rambunctious kids saying hi to them? Do we notice a coworker who appears to have poor performance issues, but if we stop the time to ask, you'll find out maybe their spouse has lost a job or they're having trouble having a baby, and that's what's really going on. 
Do we notice new people that are courageous enough to look up Browncroft online, walk through these doors, having not been churched, and come and sit down? Do we notice them enough to ask if they're new and maybe invite them to lunch or to your small group? For us to care, we first have to notice. Let me show you a picture. At the risk of embarrassing a few people, this is a shot of some 11th graders from our family ministry and some 10th graders. The tall gentleman in the back is John Sweeney, my partner in crime for leading 11th grade. And about a month and a half ago, John sent out a text on a Thursday. This is at the end towards school wrapping up. He sends out this text. Hey, guys, girls, there's a family in our church that is in a bind. They're going to sell their house on Tuesday. The yard needs a lot of work, and they're in a tough spot. Can anybody come and help us do some work? So he sends out that text. Our 11th graders, some of our 10th graders, rearrange their schedule. Sunday afternoon after church, they go out. Everybody puts in phenomenal effort. We clean up that yard really well. We take a pause. We pray with that family. And we had church. It was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. But here's the thing. I care about my Browncroft family, my Browncroft neighbors. But without John noticing, I would not have the opportunity to care. But because John noticed we all had that opportunity to care. So we need to slow down. That's my lesson. That's my point here. Slow down and notice. Second application point from this young girl is this, to love the unlovely. Loving the unlovely. It would have been perfectly justified for this girl who was captured, taken away from her family, who's in a completely lower position than Naaman, to not help him. He did not deserve her help. She would have been completely justified to keep the information away from him. But she chooses to help him. She chooses to notice him and tell her master that there is a way for him to get help. And I wonder how many times in our lives do we have somebody who has wronged us, a coworker maybe, maybe an extended family member, and we decide we deserve not to like them, we deserve to be bitter against them because they're unlovely and they're prickly and they don't say nice things about us. The lesson here is we need to love the unlovely if we want to love our neighbor. We need to learn to love the unlovely. And sometimes the unlovely is not the person. It's the situation, the leprosy. And we need to embrace that messy situation and decide to love our neighbor. The neighbor we're called to love is not often the one we choose, but the one God chooses 
for us. The one God chooses for us. G.K. Chesterton has this great insight. He says this, The Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also love our enemies because generally they are the same people. They are the same people. Naaman's story continues. He gets told that this girl knows a guy, and he believes. He goes to Israel. He goes to the king. The king can't heal him. Elisha hears about Naaman and says, come to my place. And so Naaman goes to Elisha's place. Elisha doesn't even meet him. Elisha sends out a messenger and says, go dip in the Jordan seven times. Naaman feels like he's above that kind of command. And, you know, that's not worthy enough. He'd rather go kill a lion or do something great to deserve the healing. And his servant humbles him and says, hey, this is such a small thing that this guy is asking you to do. Why don't you just go dip in the Jordan? And so we pick up in 2 Kings 5, verse 14 to 15. So Naaman, so he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times. As the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in Israel in all the world except in Israel. The third application here from this girl, from this story, is trust God to work. Trust God to work. I want you to think, what did this little girl have? Did she have power? No. Did she have station? No. Did she have money or the means to help? No. She just knew a guy. That's it. I know a guy. That's all she had, but... She trusted. Think of the faith that she had. She trusted that God would work and heal Naaman. And not only did God heal Naaman, God healed his body and his soul. It says in this last verse, Naaman says, Now that I know there is no God in all the world except Israel. His body is healed and his soul is healed as well. If we are to love our neighbor, we need to trust God to work. Because some of the love that you need to give, you don't have the means to take it to the end. You don't have all it takes to carry it through. But you've got to take that first step. You have to notice them, even if they're not lovely, and you have to trust that God will do that work, as this little girl trusted. About two years ago, we brought an opportunity to our church. When the Ukraine war started off, there's an organization, Deaf Bridge, that we brought up. And this organization had a team and missionaries and people that were going into Ukraine and taking out deaf Christians. Because when the sirens were going on in Ukraine, they couldn't hear what was going on. So they were in the gravest of dangers. And so this organization that we partnered with as a church, we helped to pay for some of the vans that would go in, went in and got those people. 
I want to share with you another chapter in that story. A chapter of how one of our Bronkoff families took it a step further and trusted God and partnered and sponsored and helped one of those families from Ukraine that were deaf to the States into our church community. So here's a clip that came on our local news about two weeks ago. Let's check it out. home in Pittsburgh around dinner time is full of a lot of people. You guys going to make some cake? A lot of food. And a lot of love. The McGee's themselves are a family of six, but for the last three months, they've added another family of four to the mix. Anton, Svetlana, Samuel, and Adam were living a great life in Mariupol, Ukraine. Until Russia invaded. Mom and dad are deaf, so they did the best they could at the start of the war. And I could see them, and it was terrible. There were so many, and they were dropping bombs. It was a terrible thing to see. And we just kept going under. And we would use wood to try to stay warm because we had no gas, no utilities, no light, no electricity, no running water. But when they were inside... As deaf people there, we didn't know where their artillery was coming from or the missile attacks. We would ask people, are there evacuation routes? Are there buses? We had no information. So we would just sit and wait in our home. But the home was hit and hit again. This is actually recent video of what remains. Our last remaining room is destroyed. We had nowhere to stay. So after a brief stop at a shelter beneath a local college, the family decided to evacuate the country. They had to rely on six-year-old Samuel, who is hearing, to guide them. There was active shooting going on outside the building. So our oldest child, we said, do you, do, you hear, do you hear the gunfire? Is it close? If you hear it, let us know, and we will lower and then get down on the ground. And so we gathered our kids, and we started to walk quickly. They got on a bus and eventually made their way to Germany, where they remained in a refugee camp for 10 months. It was there they connected with the McGees through an organization called Deaf Bridge, which has been working to help deaf people during the war. Hopefully, that way, or I were in a situation like that, someone will be willing to help. So I think that's what drove it. Bill McGee is deaf himself, and the rest of the family knows sign language, so they agreed to sponsor the Mayer family. It's a full house, but it's worth it. Those are our friends, people in our church, people who've heard the story, and then it's amazing. We call them angels. They'll just show up on our doorstep with a gift card to a grocery store or sometimes food. Meals are delivered. People came with furniture, pillows. Um, so word of mouth, it's really the Rochester community has just stepped forward. Since they've arrived, Anton has secured a full-time job in construction. The boys are in school learning English, and Svetlana is taking side jobs as a seamstress. And we've been so thankful that God blessed us and our family. It's a miracle that he got us this far. But there are still plenty of challenges ahead. Right now, we're focused on trying to get a car, get a driver's license, find a place to live, settle our children, learn English, learn ASL. What the future holds, we don't know. For our children, we want to give them a new life. We want them to be able to settle and grow. It doesn't matter with us. God will take care of us. We want our children to have the opportunities.
you know, one of the most, yeah, it's amazing how God is working. You know, one of the most amazing, most touching parts of this story and being just an onlooker in this story is if I asked how many people have had an opportunity to help or to be affected by both of these families, you would see three or four dozen of people. There have been so many people that have either helped or been affected by the Mars, by this deaf couple that's moved into our community, into our church. It's amazing. All because one family was willing to trust God to work. The Mars are not experts in immigration. They're not experts in travel and relocation from Ukraine to Rochester. But they trusted that God would work. They took that first step. And by doing that, They've allowed the rest of us to care and love our neighbor. And so I, as I close, let me ask one last time to turn that camera onto us and ask this. Where do you need to slow down and notice those around you? Those that might be unlovely. And in situations where you need to trust God to work. Where do you need to do that? Will you join me as I pray for us? Lord, we come before you in humility. We do not live as we should. We do not love you with our whole heart because we do not love our neighbors as ourselves. We are sinners in need of rescue and transformation. We pray in all humility that you will change our hearts and our minds, that you will show us again how to love others the way you love us, that you will grant us the grace to experience your Spirit's guidance and love, that you will put power and courage in our hearts to do your will. This we pray in Jesus' name and his sake. Amen. Have a great Sunday, guys. Thank you.